This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Lawrence Wang, an MD DPhil candidate in vaccine research at Oxford and a med student at UC San Diego. He also works with the National Institute of Health. He's a friend of mine from fencing and fences foil on the Blues team. We first met on the bus back from Valsi last year. I had a long discussion about medicine, chemistry, and many others. He's written articles on Med School Insider and has worked in public health on the private sector, drug shops, and anti-malarials in Uganda. I always enjoy talking to him and he always brightens up the room. Welcome to the podcast, Lawrence. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Zen, and thanks for that uh, nice introduction. Uh, just, you know, before we go any further, just like to say that uh, all of the views expressed by me on this podcast are solely my own and not necessarily those of uh, the University of Oxford, the National Institutes of Health, or the UC San Diego, uh, which uh, I'm affiliated with all these institutions. Um, yeah, so let's go for it. Awesome. That's great. Um, yeah, so how's your time in Oxford been so far? Yeah, this is the DPhil section, right, of your course. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been really great so far. Um, of course, like working at, at Oxford uh, in terms of the research uh, is amazing. Just you have a lot of resources at Oxford and also you just meet a lot of very smart and uh, hardworking researchers. Um, so my time in the lab here has been really fun uh, and uh, like productive scientifically. And then outside of the lab as well, I've, you know, as you said, I'm part of the Blues team, which has been a really fun experience just getting to fence again and uh, meet a lot of interesting people who are studying like very different things than me. Um, and also just, uh, you know, Oxford's a beautiful place. Like, uh, so it's just sometimes like I, I still, well, I still just, you know, stop to think and look at the buildings and be like, wow, this is a, this is a really amazing, beautiful place that I, I get to spend some time. Um, so definitely feel blessed at being here. Mm, yeah. It's like, uh, after about four years now, the, the architecture is still a bit, um, it's still a bit out of this world, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. If you just stop to look, you just see something else that you didn't notice before. There's just so much to see, to see here. Mm. Especially the little alleys and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So quite a few times uh, when I talked to you, you mentioned that your details in vaccines in malaria. So if you could tell us a little bit about that and what stage you're at. Sure. Um, so yeah, yes. Uh, as you said, I, I am working mostly on malaria vaccines as well as monoclonal antibodies. Um, and, um, like essentially I'm in, I'm in the last year of my DPhil, um, and I'm trying to do my Viva next month, hopefully. Um, so really just winding down my research, uh, and my projects as I prepare to, uh, head back to America to resume medical school. Um, and it's, uh, essentially like I've, I've had some, some success in my DPhil. I've been able to publish a few papers. Um, as well as, um, I discovered this, uh, very potent monoclonal antibody that, um, was developed um, for the clinic. So it's now in a clinical trial and it just recently completed the, the first phase of clinical testing, uh, which was done at the National Institutes of Health in the uh, United States of America. Um, and um, the, this antibody um, is now also being uh, tested in uh, like further clinical trials in Africa, which are going to start hopefully this summer. Wow. So did you design the clinical trial as well? Oh. <laughs> no, no. And, uh, uh, so you, you need to have a medical degree in order to kind of be the principal investigator or the PI on a study. Um, so obviously I don't, I don't have those qualifications, but um, I was able to kind of help with some of the paperwork. Um, so if you want to do a clinical trial in the United States, you need to submit um, an application to the Federal Food and Drug Administration. The F that's the FDA. So they're the ones who kind of handle 
the, the licensing of new drugs. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I got to kind of have the privilege of helping with that application, which was kind of my first time ever doing that. And um, definitely it was a great learning experience as a student. So how, how did you discover that uh, little, that uh, anti-malaria? What's the potent thing? Something you uh, the, the antibody. Yeah. yeah so it? I guess, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I, um, so I guess at first I'd like to uh, kind of do a brief primer on, on vaccines and antibodies. Sure. So uh, a vaccine, like everybody I think at this point has heard of a vaccine, but what, what is a vaccine? So the idea for vaccination is really old. It's been around for hundreds, uh, hundreds of years. And essentially the idea is to expose your body to uh, a weakened pathogen or to a piece of a pathogen, um, like for instance, like the virus that causes COVID-19 hmm. so that your body can then safely induce a immune response against this uh, this uh, piece of the virus or the weakened virus so that the next time when you actually come in contact with the real virus like for instance if somebody sneezes on you and you get and you get infected with the virus your body can then fight it off because your immune system has seen it before so th like the, there's this element of um, kind of immuno immunological memory is what it's called so basically your your body's immune system can remember a pathogen that it's seen before and then fight it off uh, using various uh, methods. So one of those methods is to generate antibodies. So your body has, the, uh, your immune system has these cells called B cells, and these B cells can produce antibodies. And what an antibody is, is uh, there are many different types of antibodies, but most, most of the time when people are talking about antibodies against COVID, they're talking about this molecule called IgG. Um, so IgGs, they basically look like little Y-shaped particles. They look like this, yeah. they have two little arms. And those arms, um, they, they, they can bind to a pathogen and essentially like cause it to die or inhibit it in some way. For, the, for, for what COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, what happens is the antibody will bind to the surface of the virus, which has those spike proteins. And it basically blocks the spike protein from being able to attach to your cells. So then kind of like then the virus will just bounce off your cells rather than attaching and then like kind of going into your cells. Um, so anyways, like, so vaccines, what they do is one of the things that they can do is generate antibodies. Okay. Um, so the reason why my lab works on antibodies is of course, like we want to study these antibodies and then see if we can use that knowledge of, about how the antibodies work to create better vaccines. Because, um, the issue with malaria is that even though we do have a vaccine that has been recently approved last year, that vaccine is only about 30% effective. And you compare that to the COVID vaccines, which when they were first uh, approved, they were about 90% effective. So of course, um, there's a huge difference in the efficacy. So that's where our lab comes in. Like our primary goal is to study these antibodies uh, using various like high-tech molecular techniques, and then try to reverse engineer that knowledge into how we can create a better vaccine that can induce even better antibodies. Because of course, um, with only 30% protection, like you, you'd hope, that you could get a better FDA and by uh, how to do that is to basically make better antibodies. Okay. Um, and then kind of the second thing that we're doing is, um, so this vaccine, it, it doesn't produce enough qu high quantity as well as high quality antibodies. So what we're trying to do is trying to circumvent that issue by actually finding these really, really high quality antibodies and then giving you a high quantity of that antibody. Cause basically this vaccine, it doesn't give you high quantity, high quality antibodies. So like the idea is we can actually create the antibody in the lab 
and then give it directly to people who um, uh, to protect them from malaria. And so actually this, this kind of paradigm of instead of vaccinating people, but giving them antibody, that's um, kind of this new, new uh, method of uh, trying to protect people against infectious diseases. And it, it, it does have some advantages. You, you know, for instance, there are a lot of people who are immunocompromised, meaning their immune systems are weak for some reason, like they might have some sort of disease that makes so that they cannot produce good antibodies. So this, um, the, this method as well is actually very helpful for those people who do not create a very, uh, very good response against the vaccine and have very high anti antibody levels. So anyways, that's kind of like a, a long-winded uh, example of what, what I'm on, but uh, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing right now. So um, when you're looking for the antibodies, I'm guessing it's some sort of high throughput screening, right? So how do you, how do you look for them? Yeah, so th there are many different methods that people have come up with uh, to isolate antibodies. Um, and I'll just, I'll just give you a few examples. So um, like the way that I've been working on isolating antibodies is uh, by using, uh, like looking directly at the actual B cells that uh, produce antibodies. And I should also mention that uh, all of my work was done on, on fully human antibodies. So, um, you know, other species of animals create antibodies. So for instance, you know, mice create antibodies, um, you know, rabbits, all these different animals that they use in the lab, they actually uh, do create antibodies. Okay. Um, but for all of my research, it's, I've, I've looked at only human antibodies from actual humans. So the reason for that is um, if, if, if you're using an antibody as a drug, generally, if you use a human antibody, it can, it causes less problems. Um, and so the major thing that you worry about when you use a non-human antibody as a drug is this thing called anti-drug antibodies or ADA. Um, and that's actually where your body creates antibodies against the antibody. Um, so you can imagine if you take an, like a, a, an antibody from a different, completely different animal. So for instance, if you take an antibody from a rabbit or a mouse, um, which is they do different human bodies body well it's, it's a it's a bad pathogen or some sort of invader and create antibodies against the foreign rabbit antibody whereas if you use an antibody that was actually created from by a human then uh, there's less of a chance that your own body will recognize that as an alien protein because of course it came from a human so so again that's kind of like why a lot of people are focusing on fully human antibodies um, so how do you how do you isolate an antibody? So you have to start with the B cells. So you have to isolate the B cells from somebody's blood. So generally, what we do is um, you know you have somebody who has been exposed to malaria or someone who's been vaccinated against malaria. So then what we do is we will bring them in um, and uh, basically take some of their uh, their blood. And actually, what we're really after is their white blood cells because so your blood has a lot of different components in it. Like obviously there's the red blood cells, which makes it red. And the red, the red blood cells are the, the cells that transport oxygen, but also within your blood are these white blood cells. And within these white blood cells, you have your B cells. So we use uh, this technique called flow cytometry, which allows you to basically look at each individual cell within your body. And then we can isolate those, um, those cells one by one using this flow cytometer. Um, so that, that is this thing called uh, FACS, FACS. So it's called fluorescence-assisted uh, cell sorting. So what you can do is you can label the surface of the cell with a lot of different markers. Um, and essentially you can make them like 
glow different colors. And this, this uh, machine can use fluorescence to uh, like can read the fluorescence and then basically uh, like have each individual cell and uh, like isolate it for you. Um, and so it, what you can do is you can isolate individual antibodies and then you can use this technique called PCR, which you've probably heard of. It's, it's the same technique that they use to, um, to do the COVID testing. So you can use PCR to essentially amplify the genes from the B cell that are used to create the antibody. Um, and then, then you can, uh, once you have isolated the antibody genes, there are, there are two genes you have to isolate, um, like, because an antibody is split into two parts, um, the heavy chain and the light chain. So once you, once you isolate those genes, you can actually um, use those genes to express the antibody in cell lines within your, within your lab. So anyways, like, so that, that's kind of like a broad overview of, of how to isolate an antibody. So um, this kind of reminds me of uh, how people study mechanisms in organic chemistry. I think like they, they do the fluorescence thing as well and then see how, see how things work, right? And uh, is this the 30,000 pound experiment uh, you mentioned before? No, no, no. So actually the, the, the workflow I just taught you is kind of like the version 1.0. That's kind of okay. like um, the, uh, that, so that, that method was developed like probably a, a long time, like probably mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, so the 30,000 pound experiment I told you about is uh, kind of a more advanced technique um, that is uh, kind of more cutting edge. So there is, there is this company called uh, the Beacon, uh, sorry, the Berkeley Lights. Um, and they create this um, $1.5 million machine called the Beacon um, Optofluidic System. Okay, um, so this is kind of like one of the cutting edge instruments that are being used to kind of um, generate, to, to isolate monoclonal antibodies. Um, and uh, I, I was very lucky uh, to have had a lot of experience working on this machine when I was at the National Institutes of Health. So one of the labs I was working in it has the only machine at the National Institutes of Health. It has the only beacon there. Um, and I, I got to spend like many hours uh, using that, that machine. So it's, it's definitely a huge um, kind of uh, opportunity for me. Um, and so how, how does this machine work? So um, it actually combines microfluidics and optics. So essentially what, what you have, what, what you have is you have a tiny little chip and you can pass um, your, your um, B cells onto this chip. So this chip uh, has 11,000 kind of little pens called, uh, they're called pens because basically you can um, put a single cell into each of these little pens and each pen can hold 0.25 nanoliters. Nano so it's just a tiny amount of volume. So, uh, so basically what happens is once you put your cells onto this chip, um, the, the, um, the machine can use microfluidics to move the cells around. Um, and, then, um, and then also it can create little boxes of light and because cells are negatively charged on their surface it can use electrostatic repulsion to essentially move the cells around so it, it literally it's like it draws a tiny little box of light and then moves the cells around to where and uh, to where you tell them to move the cells and the idea again is separate the cells because you you can put on thousands of b cells and it's kind of a mess if you try to isolate antibodies from all of them because then you might get all the antibodies mixed up so the idea is you want to separate the the, the b cells into these little pens. And then once they are in the pens, um, they will start to secrete antibodies. Um, and then what you can do is you can put a fluorescent beads above them. And then if, um, if um, the antibodies bind to the fluorescent beads, which you can coat with your target 
protein, then uh, the beads will fluoresce. And then that will mark this, this B cell as the secreting antibody of interest. So it actually, it looks like these little like blooms of light. Um, and then uh, the machine also has uh, a machine learning algorithms. So you can teach it to recognize a, a positive uh, pen. And then it will automatically then select all of those pens and then give you a list of positive hits for you to export. Um, and then when you're ready to export all the cells, what the, what the machine will do is it can actually, again, draw this little uh, light cage underneath the cell and kind of move it out of the pen and then um, like wash, wash, the, wash the cell out into a plate so that you can then work with the cell downstream to uh, amplify the genes out of the, out of the cell. So anyways, like, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, it is very cool. Like I think the general principles are the same. Just uh, when you're isolating antibodies from B cells, what you need to do is you need to separate the B cells so that each B cell is alone. Because yeah. you can imagine if you're trying to, if you have 10 cells all together and you, you try to isolate their antibody genes, you could get their antibody genes mixed up. Okay, so that's why you, the, the first step is really to, to separate the cells. Okay. And then after you separated the cells, you need to identify which cells are secreting which antibodies. Cause of course your body has like billions of, of different B cells. Okay. Um, and so, and of those billions of cells, probably only a few hundred to a few thousand are producing antibodies against the protein of interest. Um, so then, so then you have to identify which ones are interesting or else you'll literally like your entire PhD will be spent cloning uh, billions of cells, which is, it's actually impossible to do that. So you have to, you have to identify which ones are actually of interest to you. And then after you've done that, then you can use the PCR technique I told you about to isolate the genes responsible for creating that, the antibody of interest. So uh, how, do you happen to know how it draws a light cage? And is it really just a, like a box of light that moves up? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's not really my area of expertise. I'm not an engineer. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not like a real scientist or a physicist. But mm. my my basic understanding is it, it literally is it is a, it is light. Um, and like I think based <laughs> like I do know that cells are negatively charged on their surface because you mm -hmm. know like cells have a bunch of um different like kind of sugars and other um like proteins on their surface that overall gives the cell a negative charge surface. So I think if you if you draw a positively charged light cage, then of course uh, the 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 light cage will repel, right? Or hold on, is it opposites repel. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I can't. Anyway, oh, okay, can yeah, so, so, yeah. Well, anyways, yeah. Like, uh, don't, don't shoot me. This isn't my area of expertise, but yeah. No worries, so yeah. I just, but it's like basically what happens is, uh, like, once it draws this box around the cell, the cell cannot get too close to uh, the um, the edges of the box because of electrostatic repulsion. So it's literally like the cell just kind of remains in the middle of the box and it just moves the cell around like this. Yeah. So are you able to watch this all in real time? Yeah, it, it's literally, it has, it has a, a really big screen and you just, I'm, you're just watching it and like praying that like, cause like sometimes it's, it's yeah. not perfect. Sometimes like uh, you'll see like the cell lip out of the cage. Cause you have to remember it's like there, there's the X, Y, and Z axis. So it draws a light cage, but it doesn't actually draw like an entire box. It draws mostly a square. So then actually the cell can slip out on the Z-axis. Like oh, it's basically it draws yeah. a box. <clears throat> it doesn't draw like a, a like a cylinder. So 
I mean, so, sorry, uh, um, like a, a square, like it basically, um, it draws a square, but not like in the Z axis. Yeah, so not like a cube or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not a cube, yeah, exactly. Um, wow. Shapes, yeah. That's such a cool, so wait, um, how long does this experiment take then? Oh, you don't want to know. Um, <laughs> so for this experiment, it, um, like, it, it kind of depends, but like from start to finish, um, in terms of, um, it probably takes about two weeks. Wow. Wait, so uh, is it, is it in a vac, is it like under like really low pressure? How, how is it, uh, how do you do it? Like start finish. Okay. Well, so, um, so in terms of when I'm actually using the machine, um, mm. it, the, using the machine probably is only a day. Um, yeah. but I have to do a lot of setup beforehand. So actually for, for, um, these B cells, what you need to do is you need to kind of wake up the B cells first. So that's what we call stimu stimulate the B cells. So the reason for that is, um, so at, like basically what we do is we isolate these B cells from people's blood, but um, to kind of increase uh, their shelf life, um, we actually freeze all of these uh, cells in liquid nitrogen. So it's like extremely cold temperatures. So it's that's called cryopreservation. So cryo is like cold. So yeah. we can preserve them at really cold temperatures and then we can thaw them when we're ready to use them. But of course, like if you super freeze cells, they kind of enter the state of like hibernation essentially. Um, so they're not really like very awake. So then you can imagine if you thaw your cells and then try to measure antibodies, the cell, the B cells are still kind of like, you know, they're still like, you know, frozen and, and sleeping. So they're not really producing a lot of antibodies. Um, and and uh, so you have to actually wake them up or, or what we call stimulate them. So um, actually I have to stimulate the, them for 10 days. So what I do is I incubate the cells um, with the B cells with um, these uh, proteins called cytokines. So what cytokines are, they're basically these proteins that float around in your blood and they kind of activate different cells. So, uh, I, you know, I, I basically put them with a bunch of, uh, you can kind of like think of them as like alarm clocks. Mm -hmm. so I, just, I just, I put the B cells with a bunch of alarm clocks to help wake them up. And after 10 days, they're like, okay, I'm awake. I'm making antibodies. So after 10 days, they're kind of secreting. Uh, I actually had to do all these experiments. I found that um, on day 10, they're kind of secreting the most antibodies on day 10. So then, uh, but then of course, if you wait too long, then they start to die. Um, Cause you know, See, cells, cells yeah. eventually die. They can't last forever. Um, so kind of like you have to reach this sweet point of they're producing a lot of antibodies, but they're not yet dead. Cause if you, mm -hmm. if you go too early, they're not producing enough antibodies. If you go too late, they're dead. So yeah. like, uh, it, kind of like the, the parabola, like the, the optimal point. So that that's uh, 10 days. So again, it, this experiment does take a long time because you can't, you can't put them onto the machine to measure their antibody secretion until um, you, you kind of have stimulated them. Yeah. So you have to, you have to do all the setup to make sure that, that it, when you do the experiment, <clears throat> it becomes the most effective at looking for what you're looking for, right? Yeah, exactly. After those 10 days. Hmm. So um, just now you mentioned cytokine, right? And uh, I don't know if you know, but it's the most common thing that on like medicine TV shows, they always mention cytokine, like cytokine storm. So I was wondering uh, if you could explain like quickly what that is just to put, just so that I, I don't have to like always wonder anymore. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, Cytokine storm, um, I guess what it means is essentially, 
Um, okay, uh, first of all, to, to explain what a cytokine storm is, and I actually don't like that term, but to explain what a cytokine storm is, I have to explain what a cytokine is. Okay. So a cytokine is um, essentially, these are generally proteins floating around in your blood that are used to uh, you know, change uh, the state of a cell. And mostly it's, um, it's like how cells communicate with each other. So you can kind of think of them as, as like, you've probably heard of pheromones, right? Like kind mm -hmm. of like honeybees, like they, they can communicate with each other by secreting these, like these volatile substances that can basically float through the air and then like trigger a certain behavior in like, you know, for instance, like the queen will secrete pheromones to like communicate with her worker bees um, and like to make them do, do stuff. So it's the same thing with cells, like cells have to communicate with each other. Cells can communicate if they like literally like, like kind of swim up to each other and like touch each other. But also let's say like you can't touch this other person over here. So you have to communicate with them somehow. Um, so like for them, like cytokines are the way that they do that. So let's say this cell A here will secrete a cytokine to communicate with cell B over here. And the cytokine, because it's, it's very small, it's a protein versus an actual cell. The protein will basically float through your, your body and then act, you know, bind to cell B and then either wake the cell up or uh, turn the cell off. Uh, so, so again, like, so cytokines aren't always about activation. They're also sometimes about deactivation. And again, it's, um, there's like, I mean, okay. So it, for anyone who has learned immunology, it's like the bane of immunology, uh, students is to having to learn all these different cytokines. Cause there are literally hundreds of cytokines. Um, because I mean, there are, there are so many different cell types within your body and they all need to communicate with each other somehow. Um, and actually there, there are cytokines that, uh, you know, kind of, Tell your body to wake up and others to tell your body to, to slow down um and anyway so what is a cytokine storm of uh, like basically it just means that um uh, fundamentally it means that your body's um communication system is completely thrown into disarray okay um so basically um like it, it's it's not really like a storm so to speak like i think that's that's kind of like a buzz term that people like because it makes it sound really bad and it is a, a, like kind of a medical emergency but essentially what it is is your body starts to uh, enters into a, a really inflammatory state so um like you've probably heard of this concept of inflammation and like oh people are like inflammation is bad or inflammation is good so inflammation inflammation it, it it really is it's like it really depends on the case like inflammation is a healthy response to something bad that is happening in your body. For instance, like if you get infected with COVID-19, your body will become inflamed. And what, what does inflammation mean? It means that your body is releasing a lot of these cytokines that activate cells, which leads to inflammation. Okay. Um, and um, versus uh, there are also anti-inflammatory um, like cytokines as well. So again, like people talk about, oh, I have to eat blueberries and like, I have to like, antioxidant they're anti like anti-inflammatory so that's true um and again it's the the point is though that your body has to be in a perfect balance okay if you have too much inflammation that's bad but like if you have like no inflammation then that's also bad so you have to like yeah. kind of hit this balance so then what happens with the cytokine storm is this balance is thrown completely into disarray mostly because there's too much inflammation um and then if you have too much inflammation like bad things happen so for instance like for um, one of the things that they're worried about for um, the uh, for COVID nineteen is with the cytokine storm is it, it causes this really terrible um, a disease called acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. So like 
that's like if you get that like the mortality is really really high it's i think it's like like wow. 30 or 30 percent or something it's it's uh like it's bad and like basically your lungs completely just get destroyed if you if you have this because there's just so much inflammation and you, your lungs are actually very delicate they're basically like like balloons so like you just basically all the balloons get popped and yeah. uh like it, it's and then uh once your once your lungs kind of once those balloons pop it's very difficult for them to uh kind of reform the balloons within your lungs okay just just to um just to clarify what percentage of cases would get this because you said it's with COVID, right Oh. Yeah. Um, so, so COVID kind of has, uh, is, is a biphasic disease. So there's, there's kind of like the, this, uh, viral phase and then the inflammatory phase. So what happens is, okay, like, look, say you, you get infected with COVID, right. Um, and then in first phase, the, the virus is, is replicating in your upper airways, um, like kind of like your nose and then like your throat and stuff like that. And then eventually it starts getting kind of penetrating lower down into your lungs. Cause like, uh, of course, like your upper airways are up here and then your lungs are kind of down here. So um, it's really like when it gets into your lungs as well as you, the rest of your blood, that bad things happen. Okay. Um, and uh, okay. But like a lot of people think that, oh, like it's, it's the virus itself that's causing a lot of the damage, but actually that's not, not true. Uh, what happens is um, like, you, as you know, like people start dying, like maybe two weeks after they've gotten COVID. So by that point, actually, the virus is pretty much gone. And what happens is you enter the second stage, which is the inflammatory stage, because what happens is your body, it, when it realizes that it, it's been infected with a virus, it starts to, again, create all these cytokines to wake up all the immune cells to be like, okay, like, guys, wake up, there, there's a virus here, we have to fight it. So then your body destroys the virus. But then what, even after the virus is gone, your body is still thinks there's there's bad guys around. So it's still like, again, trying to fight off everything. All the, and then uh, it actually starts to harm your own body. Um, your, your immune system starts, starts to harm your own body. So um, that's kind of like this inflammatory phase. Um, and uh, that's actually when all of this damage occurs. So actually this is when your own immune system actually becomes uh, a double-edged sword and starts to harm your own body. And like mostly your lungs is where people are worried about because uh, your lungs, as I said, are very fragile. Um, and, uh, again, like, even though the virus is gone, your immune system is still attacking, um, the, the lungs tissues. And then that can then lead to this condition called ARDS. I see. <clears throat> ARDS. So I'm guessing with the inflammatory stage, uh, occurs more if you have a higher, like higher dose of the virus, like, when does that, I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to understand how that comes um and uh, yeah so yeah so um I'll, first of all I'll say i'm, I'm not i'm not yeah sure, sure. expert on this my, my understanding is essentially like there are some people who um like may not be able to mount a very uh good like kind of controlling response against the virus so if, you know again for for generally for most people what will happen is if you get infected your body will be able to clear the virus and you'll be recovered. Okay. And nothing, nothing bad will happen. Um, but there are some people, you know, a lot of them with pre-existing conditions or people who are unvaccinated because again, their, their body, their immune system is not ready. Um, yeah. where their, their immune response will actually, um, be too vigorous. Um, and even after the virus is gone, their immune system will keep going, um, and then cause, 
um, you know, essentially problems with um, their um, with their with their lungs and things like that. So kind of like a lot of the things that kill people um, with COVID is again damage their lungs, and then that can actually cause this um, uh, other complications. So for instance, like post post viral pneumonia. So what happens is the virus weakens your lungs and then kind of secondary bacterial infections can then set in. Okay. So that that's one of the concerns that you get for, especially for respiratory viruses, like, like COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. Um, and, uh, other things, um, just, you, you also get these, um, these things called thromboemboli. So essentially those are, those are basically clots. So what happens with COVID is actually it, completely messes up um, the, the system of proteins within your blood that are responsible for forming clots. So you, you um, so there's this like, you know, if you ever cut yourself, eventually the, uh, if, if you're a healthy person, the, the cut will basically like clot over and kind of like the blood will congeal and turn hard to kind of close up the wound. Right. So that, that is your clotting. That is your clotting system. It is a part of your normal body to basically stop you from bleeding. If you ever get a cut. Okay. Um, so you have a system of proteins within your body that have to be perfectly balanced in order to do that. So what happens is COVID can actually cause problems with that system. And of course, like if you develop a clot within your body, that's bad. So for instance, like one of the things that can kill people is they can uh, develop these emboli within something like their brain, maybe. Um, and then of course, if you block a blood vessel in your brain, bad things happen. That, that is, that's what is a stroke is called. It's, it's just, you, you can cause strokes in people basically. Um, if you mess with the clotting system. So that's another thing that can kill people uh, with COVID-19. So again, like the, the general, like kind of what's happening with COVID-19 is the virus, um, it's, it messes with your body's system in some way and throws it into disarray. And then from that, um, like from that consequence, various consequences can occur, for instance, like damage to your lungs, which then leads to you getting infected with another bacteria. And then you can't, you can't breathe and eventually you die. Um, or like you can develop a stroke, for instance, in your brain and then die because again, the virus messed with uh, the clotting system. Mm. So like, to be honest, like for a lot of infectious diseases, it's not the actual virus that kills you. It's actually your own body's like systems that are thrown out of balance that can kill you. Like even like these really crazy um, diseases, like um, like uh, Ebola and things like that, a lot of the damage isn't actually caused by the virus itself, but it's, it's caused by your, your body's immune system to, trying to fight the virus. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, viruses want people to pass on, right? They don't want to kill your host. So yeah, um, exactly. They, the, so don't get me wrong. Viruses can cause de direct damage yeah. to the cells that they infect. Okay. But, um, like, there are a lot of other cells that the viruses don't infect that are basically like bystanders. So like, let's just say like this, this cell is infected, but the cells next to it are not your body recognizes, Oh no, this cell is infected. So then it starts killing that cell, but then the cells next to it might also get killed as well. And so then basically, even though those cells are like, we we're not infected, we didn't do anything. Um, yeah. so yeah. Um, but, and so again, like it, it's, it gets really dangerous. I think and one of the issues, uh, and why, why I think it's so fascinating to study this is like, we can actually, if we can figure out how to kind of properly control your body's immune system, we can actually reduce a lot of the mortality associated with uh, these diseases. Cause you can basically, if you can control the immune system and just make it just kill the infected cells instead of like destroying all the other cells, 
then um, then you know we can make these diseases a lot more survivable. Oh, so okay. How does malaria harm the body then? Is it also the body's immune system, or is it different? Yeah, yeah. To be to be honest, it is. Um, so okay, so malaria is uh, actually very different from COVID, of course. Uh, so malaria is caused by a parasite, whereas COVID is caused by a virus. So those are completely different organisms. A virus is actually not a living being. Viruses are extremely small. Um, and the reason why viruses are not considered living uh, organisms is because they're not cells. They're actually smaller than cells and they require cells in order to grow. So if you just take a virus and just put it uh, into a dish, it's not going to grow by itself. You need to give it some sort of cell for it to infect. And then it can use, it, it basically can then hijack the cell's own like replication machinery and then reproduce more of itself. Okay, so that is what a virus is. A parasite like malaria. So uh, malaria is a type of parasite called it an AP complexin parasite. So these parasites are much larger than viruses. Um, um, and like viruses, actually, they also require cells in order to, to kind of make more of themselves. But um, just again, like they actually have a lot of other machinery that they have within within their the cell itself for the, the, the parasites. Okay, so that's just kind of like an overview of the differences. Okay, so when in malaria, what happens is, as you know, is it's spread by mosquitoes. So if a mosquito bites you um, and it's infected with malaria, it will inject these parasites into your blood that are called sporozoites. So they, they basically look like little worms. They, I mean, they actually look like eyebrows. So, uh, so basically these little like eyebrow shaped worms will swim through your body, get into your bloodstream and then ride your bloodstream um, down into your liver and where they infect your liver cells. Okay, um, and then seven to 10 days later, these uh, parasites after having infected your, your uh, liver cells, they can actually uh, procreate within your liver cells. Okay, and then they, they kind of transform into this second stage. Um, and this second stage are called merozoites. So then um, the merozoites come out of your blood, so sorry, come out of your liver and start infecting your red blood cells. So it's at this point that you become very sick with malaria. Okay, so it, that's called the blood stage of malaria. So when it's infecting your liver, you have no symptoms, but it's only when you're infecting your blood that you start to develop symptoms. So these symptoms, um, the symptoms are chiefly is fever. Um, and uh, actually uh, malaria is, is sometimes called tertian or quartan, quartan fever because these parasites, they actually have a cyclical um, replication stage. So they like, they'll infect your, uh, your red blood cells and then uh, procreate for a few days. And while, while they're kind of quietly in your red blood cells, you're not sick or you're less sick. But then once they start coming out of your red blood cells, what they do is they actually cause your red blood cells to explode. Um, and when they start coming out, like, oh, yeah. And also they, they actually come out synchronized. So they go all come out at the same time. That's when you start, like when your blood cells start exploding, you can imagine your, your body's not going to be happy. So then that's when you start developing like really, really bad symptoms. Um, and then again, then it goes through another cycle again. So then you'll have a, a brief period of time where you're not feeling as bad. And then when they start exploding again uh, on day three, then you start to get really sick. So what, what can kill you is again, of course, exploding blood cells bad. Um, so you, you become a severely anemic. So what anemia is basically like, you don't have enough red blood cells because you need red blood cells to transport oxygen, um, around in your body. Okay, so that is kind of like the first chief bad thing that can happen. Um, also, there's this really uh, bad um, complication 
um, called cerebral cerebral malaria. So this is extremely deadly. So that what 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 happens here is um, the malaria can get into your brain. It doesn't infect your brain cells, but basically um, your brain has a lot of blood vessels, right? So um, the these red blood cells when they explode or they um, they cause problems for inflammation within your brain. Then your brain can like basically um, like basically uh, your brain becomes inflamed. Um, and what happens is like the, the blood vessels in your brain become damaged um, and start to leak water in, into like the rest of your brain. So then basically like that, which is bad, like, cause basically then um, you can develop a lot of problems in your brain. Like, I, I don't want to get too much into the physiology, but basically that you can just imagine if the blood vessels in your brain are kind of like getting exploding and things like that, bad things will happen. I see. So <clears throat> when the cerebral malaria happened and, the normal one like is it if a mosquito bites your head as man is your bite in your head no no so uh so basically there like mal malaria can be separated into like severe or uncomplicated malaria okay. um so generally people who get complicated or severe malaria are children because their 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 immune systems are not as well developed as adults or or if you're um a, a person who didn't grow up in a malaria um, malaria endemic area. So for instance, if I traveled to Africa and didn't take any malaria drugs, I might get really bad malaria and like could actually get cerebral malaria because basically ha what happens with malaria is, let's say you grew up in Africa. Um, like if you survived childhood, it meant you probably got malaria several times. But if you survive malaria, your body can actually produce, build up some immunity to make it so that you're less likely to die. So actually... Um, most of the people who get malaria and die in the world are children. There are, of course, some adults who still die, but generally most adults who get it, they feel really sick, but they don't actually die because their body has built up some immunity against the malaria parasite. Um, but again, uh, so, um, yeah, so again, like with, uh, like the, 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 the cerebral malaria, what happens is again, like the, the malaria parasites cause problems within the blood vessels within your brain. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah. So again, that, that mostly happens with children. So, so it's, um, yeah. So just remembering back to what you said, the, the sporozoic, uh, like state of the malaria, um, goes into your liver and then it goes in, and then it turns into the merozoic part right after it procreates. Yeah. And that's when going through the bloodstream, it can go into the, into the like brain area, uh, when it's yeah. a very severe, um, um yeah when it's a very severe sort of an infection right yeah yeah um and um i, I get like again so these marozoids they don't i, I want to don't infect your brain cells yeah they infect your red blood cells but of course mm -hmm. your red blood cells go everywhere in your body because they transport oxygen and of course every single part of your body needs oxygen so these red blood cells go throughout your body so that's kind of why uh, malaria can kind of reach any part of your body. Um, and uh, I, another kind of complication is these red blood cells, when they get infected with malaria, they actually like they, they usually look like donuts. Yeah. Um, okay, but uh, the red when they get infected with malaria, their shapes change. And actually, they, um, they, they, there's this thing called sequestration. So what that means is these these red blood cells become really sticky and start sticking to each other. Um, and like that can actually cause problems by blocking blood vessels, um, especially like very tiny blood vessels in your brain. Okay. Um, so again, that's another kind of, uh, uh, problem again with is your brain is very fragile. 
So um, just really any, if you mess with any of the blood vessels in the brain, bad things will happen. Wow. Oh my God. So um, uh, why does it, so, okay. The way I understand it is that, uh, well, previously was that it's a mature and immature state, right? Is that what the sporozoic and merozoics are? Just the mature and immature states? No, they're, they're actually um, completely different stages. So the actually uh, malaria parasites have like multiple different stages. Those are just two of the stages I told you. Okay. Um, and that's like kind of like the, one of the amazing things about parasites is they actually can completely change the, the, the way that they look. So these parasites look completely different and they express a completely different like suite of genes. So the malaria parasite has something like over 5,000 different genes and it, it can, it literally, it's like, it, it transforms into a complete, it would be like you'd done like somehow you suddenly turn into like, um, like, I don't know, like, uh, like a, a six foot five, like Swedish person or something, you know, it's just like completely yeah. different. You look completely different. It's, it's literally like, if you look at them under the microscope, they, they look like completely different, um, um, to, to, and they also are expressing a completely different set of proteins. So actually that's what makes it so another difficulty for vaccinating against malaria is you have to create different vaccines against the different stages because th they just have completely different um, like look and like have a completely different set of proteins. So the, the protein that, uh, is, that we target with our vaccine on the sporozoites, which is the, the vaccine that our vaccine targets sporozoites, it will not work against merozoites because the merozoites have a completely different set of proteins. And like, so the protein that we target on sporozoites is not expressed on the so so the antibodies that I, the antibody that I local that I isolated completely useless against merozoites. It's, it's very useful against sporozoites. Doesn't do anything merozoites. So that's that's actually one of the other challenges for malaria is it's like ability to shape shift. Yeah, I because I remember when I when I was reading up about what the current vaccines are. It's like I think the re, the most effective one is called Moscurix. Is that right? Um, yeah, Moscurix, and it's yeah. like seventy percent efficacy. All right. Um, do you know about how that how that works? Does it does it attack all the different states as well? Or? No, no. So actually, so also, muscarix is not actually. Uh, it's actually worse than that. It's um. So basically, it's it's fifty percent effective after one year, and it drops down to to thirty percent effectiveness over uh, four years. Um, it's probably like seventy percent effective within like the first few months, but uh, of course, uh, that's that's not that great. Um, and anyways, so with, um, with muscurix, what it does is it, it actually targets this protein on the surface of the sporozoite. Okay. So this protein is called CSP or circumsporozoite protein. So, uh, it's a protein that covers the entire circumference of the sporozoite, hence why it's called the circumsporozoite protein. Um, and actually the antibodies that I've been working on also target this protein. So it's probably like the, one of the most promising targets in all of uh, malaria vaccine research. Um, and uh, again, like, like as, as I told you with muscurix, it's um, the, the efficacy is not as good as we would want. And part of the reason for that is uh, the antibodies that it produces may not be very high quality. Um, and also the quantities um, kind of come down over time. So the idea is um, if you can isolate a super potent antibody um, and then give high quantities of that super potent antibody then you can probably improve the efficacy of protection. Um, and I, I, another thing I'd like to mention is um, your body 
again, it can has um, uh, the ability to make perhaps 10 to the 12th to 10 to the 15th different types of antibodies, but not all antibodies are created equal. So you can imagine, let's say we take a thousand people and have them run a mile. Um, everybody's going to have different times. Some people are going to run under a four minute mile. Some people are going to run like 14 minute miles. So the idea, like the, where the scientists come in is we literally find all of the Roger Bannisters and Usain Bolts and all like the super, super fast, super powerful antibodies. And we only select those antibodies and then give them to people. And like, cause you can imagine you don't want to trust like the 14 minute mile runner to like fight malaria. You want, you want the Roger Bannisters and the, the Usain Bolts of the world who are like really, really strong um, to, to, to fight against disease. Yeah. So because of the complexity with malaria, it takes a lot longer to get a vaccine, right? Um, like we're trying to get a vaccine for a really long time so far. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think like there are several different reasons. So one is people have been working on a malaria vaccine for decades, like since at least the 19, 1950s and 60s. Um, and, you know, so we've only had one malaria vaccine. Um, and actually, so what, what are the reasons for that? One is because malaria is a parasite. So uh, we have, I'm sure you've, you know, we, we have a lot of vaccines in existence in the world. Most of those uh, vaccines are against viruses. There are some that are against bacteria. There is only one against a human parasite. Okay. Um, and that parasite is malaria. So what is the reason? Why are there so many more virus, virus, um, virus uh, vaccines versus parasite vaccines? One of the reasons is because viruses are so much more simple than parasites. So, uh, you know, viruses generally like they have between five to 10 genes at, at maximum. Um, whereas uh, for COVID, I'm sorry, for, for malaria, you have 5,000 different genes. So that's 5,000 different targets that you could be looking at. So it's just exponentially more complicated. Um, and then also because parasites are much larger, you generally need to have a lot more antibodies to protect against something that's larger. It's just, I mean, you can imagine like if you, uh, I mean, yeah, it's just, it makes sense that it's, it's a, the virus is very small. Parasites, huge need a lot more antibody to protect them, uh, to protect against a, 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 par a parasite versus a virus. Um, and then also the third reason is um, there's less funding for malaria because um, like malaria mostly affects the poorest. Whereas yeah. of course, like with COVID, uh, you know, it's when it started messing with the stock market, people were like, oh, we can't, <laughs> we can't have this. We got, we got to cure that. We got to cure this malaria. Um, like we can't have our stock portfolios being suffering. So, uh, and people wanted to go to the bar. So, so yeah, so that's why there's just billions and billions of dollars poured into uh, COVID vaccine research versus for malaria, like um, not, not as much. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if, uh, how much you've studied the other ones as well, like chickenpox, dengue, are those also parasites? Or? Yeah, so it's both chickenpox and dengue are both caused by viruses, though uh, dengue is also spread by mosquitoes. Um, but uh, it's a different type of mosquito. So the mosquitoes that spread uh, malaria, they're called Anopheles mosquitoes. So those, that's a certain species of mosquitoes. Uh, the other mosquitoes that spread dengue, they, they're called Aedes. So mm -hmm. they're, they actually look completely different. Um, and yeah, the dengue is a virus um, and also a really, really terrible disease. Uh, mm -hmm. it, causes, it can cause this thing called break bone fever, where literally it feels like your bones are breaking when, when you're sick. That doesn't sound great. Um, yeah, it's, it's really painful. I, I've never gotten it, but I've had people who had it, and uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, so 
because the because malaria affects mostly children in the I mean the worst effects would be on children, right? So yeah. how would you how how does that affect the testing, like the trials and things like that? Yeah, I mean, of course, like uh, so actually malaria is one of the top three uh, infectious killers of of children in the world. So um, I think malaria kills um, about half a million people in the world, and most of those are children. Um, and so, of course, like right now, uh, like the 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 trials that we're doing with this antibody, we're targeting uh, one to ten year olds. So it's really like you, uh, the one the, you want to make sure that the whatever drug or vaccine that you're working on can really work and uh, and protect children and, and safely against a disease uh, like malaria. Let's see. Okay. Um, so I want to ask like. So in, in other sciences, like materials, for example, when you find something new that seems like it could work, the difficulties in scaling up, right? Yeah. Um, is that as much of a problem in medicine and um, like biochemistry, bio biomed research with like making a lot of the protein or antibodies? Yeah, it's, it's we have the same problem in like biomedicine. So uh, generally how it works, I, I can I don't know how it works exactly in the UK, but in the US, let's say like you you are the head of a lab and you discover a new compound that you want to market. Um, like uh, you have to part like in the first phases, you can probably find enough funding to do small clinical, small phase testing. But then when you want to really like um, like scale up, you need to partner with, you know, bi the biopharmaceutical companies and things like that. So generally, uh, so where I work at the National Institutes of Health, uh, we're able to test things in phase one, meaning it's very small, maybe like between 10 to 50 people. Um, and then phase two is generally you have like, you know, a few dozen to a few hundred people um, in, in, your, in your clinical testing. And then phase three is where you have literally like sometimes up to 30 to 40,000 people. Um, so you can imagine the costs become exponentially greater. Um, and it's really only these very wealthy and powerful biopharmaceutical companies like AstraZeneca, like Pfizer, like GlaxoSmithKline, like Merck. You've probably heard all these names now. These are all like multinational uh, corporations that have billions and billions of dollars of profit. Um, and sorry, of, of um, yeah, I mean, they do make billions of dollars of profit and they just have a lot of money to be able to conduct these clinical trials. So um, to bring a drug, for instance, like a vaccine or a monoclonal antibody, to uh, market, you do pretty much need to partner with these major entities because they can help you do the, the later phases of clinical testing. And then eventually also um, produce the drug at scale once it has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, like these are, these are the people who have the factories who can produce millions of these doses. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of like the, the current landscape of how medicines are produced in uh, pretty much all over the world, to be honest. Yeah, and um, I suppose with like translational medicine, uh, previously it's probably been like 10, 20 years for, uh, for you to get for you to get it out, but recently it's like been shortened significantly, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to... Sorry. You're gonna oh, say sorry. Something. You're gonna say something. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, yeah, as you said before, for something like a vaccine, it usually I think the average was like fifteen years. For you to to get it fully approved, and of course with COVID, they they approved it 
uh, in less than a year. Um, and a lot of people were concerned, oh, maybe they were cutting corners with the safety, things like that, but they, they did it. They, they did perform all of the same safety trials. It's just like us, one is like the, the, the kind of like the preclinical, meaning like testing in the labs and things like that. That was very fast because um, like, like it, it was really a triumph of science that how quick it was um, to be able to actually create the vaccine in the lab. And then of course, um, the clinical testing is where it's the slowest, but they were again, able to streamline that as well um, by, and again, why was that done? It was because of the emergency aspect of like, we needed these vaccines to help kind of get the world back to normal. Um, and then also like, there was a lot of money behind it as well. Um, so I, I do think though that the, the rule book has been rewritten for how vaccines can be tested very quickly. So I do think that going forward, future vaccines will also probably have shorter testing times as well, like clinical testing times. Hmm. Um, so uh, I'm not sure how much you'd say, and, um, but do you think we're somewhat at a normal phase now in the world with COVID or? Um, no, but uh, like, okay, I think it depends on where you are. Um, mm. You still have to realize that there are a lot of people in the world who are still unvaccinated. So uh, like there is, there is a very high likelihood that we are going to have other variants that can cause, that can like, escape antibody mediated immunity um, and cause like huge numbers like what we're seeing with Omicron right now. Um, and I think one of the major reasons for that is because we still have large parts of the world that are unvaccinated either through choice or through an equitable distribution of vaccines. So in, in the US, you can get a vaccine anywhere in the US. Um, and But then the US, I think we're still around 63% fully vaccinated uh, in terms of the people who are eligible for vaccination. So that's still 40% of eligible people who are unvaccinated. And th that for those people, it, it was a choice. Like they've had the chance to get vaccinated. So that's, that's an issue in and of itself, this anti-vaccine sentiment in places with a lot of vaccines. And then also, of course, I mean, in Africa, I think like probably still it's like less than 10% fully vaccinated. Um, and uh, so again, like one, like like no one is safe until everyone is safe. So like that, I, I listened to this podcast on on, back, on viruses and vaccines and things. So there's this uh, guest doctor, that's, that's his phrase. Um, and it's very true for something like infectious diseases, which is why I got into infectious diseases is like, it, it really is a, a problem for the globe. Like, and uh, like, if you don't protect everybody on the globe, then you yourself are putting yourself at risk. So I think like this issue of vaccine equity is, is really at the heart of, of uh, what's going on now. I mean, um, like, of course it's important to develop new medicines and things like that. Um, and they are developing new medicines for COVID, but the, the real kind of battleground is now sure that, that we can actually use what we have to vaccinate people and provide protection. Because if you vaccinate somebody in Africa, you're also protecting your own citizens. I see, I see. Okay, so um, I want to ask, since you're doing an MD and also PhD, we just call it DPhil here, right? Um, yeah. What's the benefit of doing an MD as a researcher? And what's the benefit of doing a PhD as a medical doctor? I'm sure it's must have informed quite a lot of the ways you think about current issues and uh, science as well. Yeah, so I think um, there, so, so what medical training does is it doesn't really train you to investigate um, problems. It basically trains you to take 
existing knowledge and apply it as quickly as possible. So um, like, so whereas for, for, for getting a PhD, what you, it's about like kind of creating new knowledge and like new understanding of how diseases work. Okay. Um, and so like, I think the people who uh, like me who decide to get an MD PhD, they're really mostly interested in research um, and they want to also apply medical knowledge to that research and perhaps potentially one day do clinical trials. Um, so I think um, like you can, like everything I'm planning to do with my future career, you can do if you just get a medical degree. Um, however, right now, like with uh, like funding is very um, kind of uh, competitive. So people with an, a, an actual PhD have an advantage over MDs or PhD alone. Um, so that's, uh, that's why I ended up deciding to do it is because I wanted to kind of have um, the formal training because like you, you, like even those people who are doing research with only a medical degree, they did still have to go through formal training, but they didn't actually decide to get a PhD. So for me, I, I wanted to get the PhD to have that formal training. And then also by having that PhD, it actually increases my competitiveness in, in uh, getting this, this grant funding, which, uh, you know, as you know, in the UK, it's uh, the grant funding is really tight in the US as well. It's also very competitive. Mm. So yeah, that, that 30,000 pound experiment, right? Like why is that, why was it so expensive? <laughs> uh, well, so, it, so that 30,000 pound experiment, it was um, the, the beacon machine I mentioned to you, the $1.5 million machine, it was lent to us for a trial um, uh, for the, uh, by, by the company that produces this really expensive machine. And like the, they, they had to provide all of the different like kind of reagents and other like, you know, um, tools that you needed to, to run the experiment. So uh, the, the price that they set for us was 30,000 pounds. Yeah. I see. Wow. And like, yeah, I mean, each, each chip alone is about 3000 pounds. And then plus like all the other reagents and then plus like the cost of like shipping this machine here. Cause it's, it's quite a large machine. It's probably like two meters by like two meters. It's like, you know, it's, it's pretty big. Yeah for experiments like that which really improve how much science you can actually do getting an mdd fill like really helps with like getting the funding to do these experiments that actually create impact and like change things right yeah exactly hmm. so you also have an interest in public health i found that you had done some work in uganda and uh, the project was titled dengue as a cause of non-malarial a non-malarial febrile illness in southwestern Uganda. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So uh, you probably found that that Global Health Institute post. Uh, so actually, that that's a little out of date. I, I wrote sure. uh, so uh, I, I wrote a proposal that I would work on that, and I ended up working on something else. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so actually, I ended up working on anti-malarial uh, drugs uh, instead of dengue. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I found I found your paper. It was um. In the private, the private sector drug shops, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's, sure, that's sure. Worked on. Dengue, malaria, completely different diseases. Yeah. Okay. Spread however. Glad, um, glad, glad yeah. I checked. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, thanks. Thanks for doing the research ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, like, um, yes, as you said, I am interested in, in public health and uh, I wanted to uh, go to Uganda to kind of see for myself uh, what the, um, the situation was there. Uh, and I also like, um, I was first inspired to go into medicine by reading about uh, this man named Paul Farmer, who's, he's a physician and anthropologist at Harvard. Um, and he's, he spent a lot of his career working with uh, very poor 
populations all over the world, mostly in Haiti, which is like one of the poorest countries uh, in the Americas. So um, like I, I, but like I, like I didn't want to go when I was an undergrad because I, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer them. So that's why I waited until I was a medical student because um, like I kind of had some expertise then and I went there because I had a, a very clearly defined project that I felt I could like contribute to um, to like understanding how malaria could possibly be uh, malaria treatment could possibly be improved. So kind of like the paper that I published, like one of the major findings was that these um, unregulated uh, privately owned uh, drug shops. So essentially, like in these uh, kind of far flung villages in the mountains, um, what what uh, the village drug shop keeper will do is he will um, get on a motorcycle, he or she will get on a motorcycle, drive down to the nearest a larger city, buy a bunch of malaria drugs, and then drive back to their village and then basically sell those malaria drugs out of their house or out of their little shop. Um, and the issue is um, some of these shops, like they're, 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 like they don't have the proper certifications and things like that. Uh, but of course, like these people, they don't have a, a lot of options. So um, like my job was to kind of locate these drug shops and try to understand like what level of training they had and how many uh, drugs they were distributing. And uh, we actually found that the majority of drugs were being distributed through these kind of unregulated drug shops versus the actual government owned like health health hospitals and, and health centers. Um, and so the kind of the end of the paper was we, we concluded that we have to meet these people halfway. Like a lot of people are getting their drugs through these shops. So we need to kind of do more outreach and uh, hopefully have some more like formal training for these people so that we can make sure that um, people are getting the drugs and treated the, the correct way. Because of course, like if you miss, if you uh, like don't use, like let's say you, you get uh, some pills and you only eat half the pills, that's that can cause problems because one, you may not fully cure your malaria. And also you might actually cause um, the development of resistant malaria strains because um, like, you know, kind of like they tell you, to, like if you get antibiotics, they tell you to eat all the antibiotics, not just eat half. The reason for that is again, you wanna make sure you kill all the bacteria or all of the malaria. And if you don't eat half of it, you increase the, uh, if you don't eat the full course, you increase the chance that you might get a, a resistant bug, which, you know, is, uh, is bad for everybody. Yeah, that, that would be like a nightmare for you, right? Like a super malaria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did you, did you just go, did you go around all over Uganda? Because I, when I looked at the papers, like there's a map and you had a bunch of dots on it. Oh yeah, no. So that, that's, uh, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't Uganda, but it was only in a, a very small area, probably about 50 kilometers across. Um, okay. It was like, it was, it was basically like Uganda is spread into a lot of different um, like sections, but it's called a sub-county. So there, okay. there are, there's like a county and like the parish and then the sub-county. And like, basically it's kind of like, you know, like different ways of segregating land. You know, kind of like there's Oxfordshire, and then there's Oxford, and then there's Jericho. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I must have told yeah. you a lot about like just studying one area would tell you a lot about the whole country, right? How things are working. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, like I had to, I, I didn't really have a car, so I had to like do a lot of hiking to these villages up in the mountains. So that was, uh, but I love hiking, so that that was fine. And and uh, couldn't have done it without my guide. So I, I had a local guide there named Robert. Um, mm -hmm. he's the, he's the second author in the paper, uh, Robert Bombale. Um, and yeah, he's, he was from the area and, um, people mostly speak English, but they also kind of had their own, uh, 
di dialect. Um, and uh, I, I learned a little, a few of the words of the dialect. Like I, I still remember how to say thank you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like basically he did most of the translating for me and he also knew where all these uh, villages were. So I was able to kind of, uh, I wouldn't have been able to find them without him because there were, they don't have signs there. Like I was, he told, Robert told me that this, the signposts are like certain rocks or trees like that you just have to know about because like they don't have they don't have any yeah. signs there so like i would have 100 gotten lost and maybe died um if if he hadn't been there wow because like there's literally like there's no sign yeah robert to save you man yeah yeah um, yeah. yeah robert was saved my ass <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh i want to ask what, what was the perception of like like infectious diseases and vaccines and these like little villages and houses in uganda um so people are, are like I, I like so people may not fully understand all of the biology of um what's going on with malaria uh in terms of like the molecular biology and things like that or as well as the cell biology but they they do definitely understand that malaria is a disease that is spread by mosquitoes they know that mosquitoes are bad I, I think everybody kind of instinctively know. I mean, nobody likes mosquitoes, right? Like nobody likes get like if you see a mosquito on your arm, what are you going to do? You're going to squish it, okay? So, so people instinctively know mosquitoes bad, um, and they also know that um, malaria is a very dangerous disease that mostly can kill uh, pregnant women as well as children. So they're they're they've they've also um, the the area I was working, they've done a lot of outreach there and a lot of education. So the the local population really does have a good knowledge of working knowledge of like what malaria is, why it's bad, and how you can protect yourself against it. Uh, but even then, like they still have really high malaria, malaria rates there. And it, uh, the reason is because it's, it's one of the, it's a very poor area. And Uganda is actually one of the poorest uh, countries in all of the world, really. Um, and uh, kind of, uh, yeah, so like, I think that's why, like one of the reasons why I was working, why I decided to work on vaccines after I went there was, kind of seeing like a lot of these issues is um, I, I was thinking like if we can develop new tool like something like a vaccine then you can just come in and vaccinate everybody and then protect them against malaria for the rest of their lives you know in theory um, so that, that's why I was like like uh, if you if you want to really cure malaria you could just solve poverty but um, I, I think uh, solving poverty is is way more complicated than than uh, creating a vaccine. And uh, I, I think anyone who tells me that they're trying to solve poverty, I, I'm just like, good luck. Like, you're not gonna be able to do it. <laughs> Cause like, you're basically, that's like saying like something like, I want to like cure death. And I'm just like, okay, like, I don't know what that means, but <laughs> yeah. So, so I suppose like um, when you start off with a, with something like you wanna cure poverty, you gotta, gotta drill down to like what the different aspects could be. And like infectious diseases would be one of them. Because I, I remember I read- yeah. Like, I, I read a, a report, I think, by the, um, or I think it was a book about uh, how you, you brought together a bunch of economists um, to talk about uh, how to, where, where to put money to, like, help rebuild things in the world or help people, right? And I, I think the yeah. multiplier effect on vaccines was like 50 times, something like that. Like, every, every dollar put into vaccines gives you 50 times more, um, like, production or like revenue in a country that you're putting it in right so yeah um, i mean vaccines there are some people who say that vaccines are kind of the the, the best life-saving invention that, that was ever created 
certainly there it's one of the best um and i can just give you an example with with malaria um like malaria has a huge effect on a lot of these developing countries uh in terms of their economic output because you can imagine if like your children are dying from getting malaria like that's a problem right the children of the future uh for any society um and then also uh the, the adults they're not like they still get malaria and become very sick and then of course if you're sick you can't you can't work um so uh, like malaria kind of has uh, there's there's this concept in public health called uh dallies so disability adjusted life years uh so there's uh so basically it's like a measure of kind of how much productivity uh you lose if you become uh, due to disease or and death and things like that so kind of like malaria of course ha like has uh, really messes up people's dallies and things like that because it, it decreases their, their ability to be productive and uh, to, to like, you know, uh, contribute to society and things like that. Yeah. I so, see. so, oh, yeah, sorry. No, no. Um, yeah, I, I was, I was just going to say, like, um, you've written quite a, a bit about like your ideas of these things on, uh, Med Insider. Uh, yeah. so, um, I want to ask like, how'd you get involved with that when, and, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your like favorite article that you wrote, something. Sure. Um, yeah. So I got involved in that in about 2018, right as I was starting my DFIL. Um, and uh, the reason I got involved with it is actually the, the founder of Med School Insiders, as this uh, uh, guy named uh, Kevin Jabal. He actually went to UC San Diego. He's a few years ahead of me, so I actually had never met him. But then uh, I think. Um, one the person who was running his blog, um, who, this guy named Amit, um, was also a UC San Diego uh, trained physician. So he he had posted on, on my my class Facebook group, hey, like we're looking for writers for this blog. Like, uh, let me know if you want to write, and you can send me a piece. So I was like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I was interested in blogging, and um, so I, I I sent him a piece, and they liked it. They published it, and that actually ended up being my first post, which was. Uh, the pros and cons of the MD PhD degree, I think something like that. Um, and um, and then basically, like for some reason, they were they 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 thought I was a good writer, so so they they were like, hey, like, do you want to come on and, and actually manage the blog? Because Amit was really busy because he he was a resident physician, and so he had very little time. Whereas I was a PhD student, so they had asked me to run the blog. So then I ended up running the blog for about a year. Um, and then after that year, they, they, they did ask me to continue to stay, but I, it was, it was actually a lot of work. Um, and, uh, I, I felt like, uh, like I, my, I was much more interested in my research and my research was like, I was super busy. So I just told them I, I didn't want to work on it anymore. Um, but yeah, like my, my favorite article, I, I, I think I've, I've written 37 articles for that, uh, blog. So my favorite article actually, honestly, is the first article I ever wrote. Um, and, um, like, yeah, so because like, of course, the MD-PhD pathway is very near and dear to my heart because I, I really am living that pathway right now. Um, and I also had to do a ton of research for that. Like the other ones were um, maybe not as uh, I didn't know, I didn't do as much research for the for the other ones. So, yeah, for the other posts I wrote. So, yeah, uh, it's it, it is always uh, like it is kind of scary, though, to think that like probably a, a lot of people have read these. Uh, posts because like yeah I, I don't really have a social media presence so so yeah like I guess this is my presence on the internet is if you google if you google my name you'll find you'll find my posts on med school insiders <laughs> yeah uh, do you think your like your ideas and thoughts about the program has changed since 
You wrote an article. MD, you mean doing an MD PhD? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so for me, when I was starting off writing the blog, I had just started my PhD. So kind of like a lot of people actually what happens is when they do their PhD, they realize actually, you know what, I don't really like research. And then they just mostly focus on medicine after that. So for me, I like at the beginning of my PhD, I didn't know maybe I, like after I do this, PhD, I won't like research and I'll decide to just focus on medicine. Um, but actually, like now that I'm at the end of my PhD, I'm still like, I still have the fire. I still like, I'm really dedicated to research. and really like it. Um, I am definitely ready to like, like go back to medicine and continue with my training in medicine. But um, like, I've had a great time in my PhD and I, I, I would, I would advise like anybody who's planning to do a PhD, even either an MD PhD or a PhD for your PhD. It's, it's really critical that you find a good lab and a good mentor. Um, Cause like I, I've had both and kind of like, like uh, the work, the the um, the subject is less important than the people I think that you choose to work with. Uh, of course, like don't work on something that you're completely uninterested in. But uh, like I think if you can identify something you're generally interested in, it's more important to then find someone who you think will really like be able to support you in the way that you need it, and also uh, someone who has a, a fair amount of money because uh, research is expensive and uh, you don't want to be limited by. Um, uh, not having enough money to do to answer the questions you want to answer. I think that uh, that advice really helps a lot, a lot of people and uh, my friends and people who are thinking about doing PhDs and probably on the fence about research. I want to ask, right, since you did a year abroad at UCL in your junior year, um, yeah. I think you were studying infection and immunity here uh, in UCL, yep. was it right? So yep, that's right. Um, what was that like? Did that, um, did that teach you a little bit about like how education is done in other countries? Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, it was nice like to kind of come here. So in the U.S. Uh, for undergrad, you have exams every maybe two, three weeks or maybe every month. It's like, so you have a lot of exams um, versus uh, when I came to the U.K., I had uh, one exam, I think. And it was, it was really scary. Um, but basically like, I didn't really do anything the entire time I was there until like the two weeks before the, ex the final exam. And then I was like, literally like just living in the library and like, you know, like really miserable. Um, so, so it was, it was very like, kind of like, instead of spreading the workout throughout the entire term, it's really like, I just squished it all in, in the end. Mm. Um, and so th definitely that's the, a different system. Um, and I think I, I had a great time here um, in terms of like, uh, I got to fence as well and travel. Uh, and then also I actually kind of had my first publication ever was from when I was doing research um, at, uh, like uh, with the Royal Free Hospital. So actually on my, again, this is where I think having a good mentor comes in useful. So on my first day um, into uh, coming into UCL, my, my tutor, this uh, man named Richard Milne, who I think he's still at UCL, but he's a virologist. And he asked me, hey, Lawrence, like uh, I was as a visiting student, would you like to have um, like a, a project that to work on a research project? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Like so that he actually connected me with this research group at the Royal Free Hospital. Um, and I was able to work on um, a research project that eventually led to a, a publication. So I was I was second author on this publication. Um, so I worked really hard for that research group and they actually like they, they were very welcoming and very nice. And uh, very, it was just an, a, a good environment to work in. Um, and uh, um, 
And yeah, and, uh, and then basically also that publication was very useful for my career going forward because, you know, having some publications is nice on your resumes, yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah, so yeah. Uh, like, um, like, like as, even as an undergraduate, uh, trying to be proactive and try and find opportunities for you to distinguish yourself. So if you are in like a science, uh, you know, uh, then trying to find research opportunities even if, even if you don't necessarily want to go into research in the future, just having uh, that, having a publication and having some sort of like uh, investigation, like uh, independent investigation that you've done is, is uh, it shows a lot of uh, good qualities that people will always like, which is like initiative, um, discipline, like, or diligence and discipline. And like, also uh, like kind of being technically good with your hands, you know, cause like, or, or like if you're doing computational work, being like able to code and things like that. Um, like, I think that that is really important to find that as an undergrad, because again, that's how you kind of, uh, I mean, at this point now, everybody's kind of figured out that you need to do that. So like, it's like how you don't look bad. <laughs> yeah. So just now when you said that you did nothing for the year, that was, that was a lie. You're doing research. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, yeah, that's true. I was doing yeah. research, but like, like, you know, I wasn't really studying for my courses. Like I, I, I like would show up, I would show up to the lecture um and that was it but like you know I, I didn't actually like like uh you know do a lot of reading so I, and I didn't really take notes <laughs> did you did you get to travel around the UK and in Europe when you were here yeah so actually my regret was that I didn't travel too much around the UK I traveled a lot around Europe like I I, I yeah and uh, even this time around as well I've, I've done more traveling in Europe than in the UK <laughs> itself yeah. and it's not because like I, I don't find the UK interesting but I guess like I find other parts of Europe more interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you ask me, like, Lawrence, do you want to go to Italy or do you want to go to Sheffield? I'm like, let's go to Italy. <laughs> Completely understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll ask, right, like, just now you touched upon it a little bit. Uh, you had, like, some role models in, um, I think, about in viruses or, like, in medicine. I want to ask if you have any um, other, like, role models, like, heroes, like, uh, maybe doctors, scientists, or anyone that you that you look up to and are inspired by. Um, so I am really inspired by Bill Gates. Um, like so, I mean, obviously heard of Bill Gates, but why am I inspired by him? Not so much about his his exploits uh, at Microsoft. Of course, very impressive, like what he was able to do with Microsoft. But I think at, in his retirement, after he like uh, left his job at Microsoft, um, he started the Gates Foundation. And uh, like, kind of used his money to improve global health, as well as kind of solve some of the like, or try to solve some of the biggest problems related to, to being a human, uh, to, to related to the Earth. So you know, he's working on climate change, he's working on uh, nuclear proliferation and nuclear energy, things like that. Um, and I think he he kind of has a, a voracious mind, uh, and he's able to he like is able to synthesize so much information and kind of is able to really have very amazing insights despite not being an expert in the field so that for me is something like i don't read enough for first of all so like, i'm like i should try to read more um and then another hero of mine is um anthony bourdain even though uh, sadly he's passed away but um like I, I think like if i could have another career i'd actually would have liked to be a chef even though like chefs have a terrible work-life balance but uh, i think physicians as well also have bad work-life balance but like i just really i, I really enjoy cooking and I, I really enjoy kind of like the the way, the way, honestly, the way a lab is run is very similar to the way uh, a lot of professional kitchens are run. Um, and I see a lot of, and uh, I'm kind of like nerd out about being a chef and things like that. 
Um, and also I just love like Anthony Bourdain, like uh, in terms of the way he talks and the way he like kind of is able to tell stories and the way he's able to kind of blend in um, around the world and like find, find break bread with people that I've always really enjoyed watching his shows and reading, reading his, his, um, his books and things like that. Yeah, I was also I was also very sad about Anthony Bourdain when he sadly passed away. Like yeah. he was, he's a really entertaining personality and the whole food yeah yeah exactly yeah I think like anybody alive or dead who I could get a beer with it would probably be Anthony Bourdain. Like I'd be like yeah get a beer you know, together with him and hear what he has to say. Yeah, and just now when you mentioned uh, you you know about you know that about how like um a kitchen's gonna run like a lab uh have you heard of molecular gastronomy before yeah yeah that's uh, like uh, that's definitely something i might want to do when i retire <laughs> it sounds so interesting like uh making foods with chemistry and stuff like that <laughs> yeah i mean food is food is chemistry you know it's, it's a bunch of different chemical reactions uh you know you especially around heat like the my, my the mired reaction that's that's what makes uh barbecue taste so good yeah exactly um because you've done a lot of fencing before like during undergrad and um on your years on your year abroad right so uh, in, in some ways it's quite similar to like training in medicine right which requires intentional practice and study so um i mean probably not so much during covid but how did you approach your training in fencing before um so i think one is like for fencing you you have to um you have to be willing to do a lot of like the boring stuff so i think one of the ways that i got better at fencing was uh like kind of personal physical conditioning which you know going to the gym like running and things like that just working on your own personal fitness um and uh like you know some people find that boring i i sometimes find it boring but overall i actually do enjoy that and also like doing footwork um, and doing like blade work, doing drills, like hitting the target. These are all kind of like the, the basics you need to become a better fencer and not just like showing up to do bouting and things like that. Cause, um, cause like, you know, if you, if you only fence, uh, you're not, I don't think you're going to get better very quickly. Um, and uh, also secondly is like coming in with a plan, like when, especially when you're bouting, um, you, you sh like it's not always about bouting to 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 beat the other person sometimes it's about practicing something that you may not be good at or like if you're fencing somebody who like they always hit you with this one action trying to like figure out okay like like if, if he's always hitting me in in my preparation like what can i do so that i can make it so that he doesn't hit me in preparation um of my attack or something like that um and uh, also i think the if, if your goal is to be become better at uh competitions then you do need to compete more and also uh in, in like to how do you become a better competitor i think like i i've been told that pretty much fencing is 70 percent mental i in my opinion I, I it might be even more than that um and of course like if you're tired or if you're injured that that's a problem but um like i think overall it really is about your mental fortitude um and like like trying to keep down your own self-doubts um because definitely for me even though i'm i'm uh I'm, I'm pretty experienced with fencing and with competing when i when i'm like going to competitions i still have doubts so it's like oh man what if i what if i don't fence well what if these people beat me and like um like your your worst your your worst enemy is yourself if you yourself think you're going to lose 
then yeah, you're going to lose. Okay. Like you need to like have a strong belief in yourself, not, and not be arrogant to be like, Oh, all these people are terrible and I'm going to beat all of them because I'm so much better, but the, to have the, uh, the mindset to be like, I am as good of, as all of these people. And uh, all of these people are going to have a tough fight for me. And I'm not going to let them, um, run all over me and and I, I am the best fencer in 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 this room and not because everyone's worse than you but because you've trained harder than all of them and things like that like having having a proper mindset is really important and then also like if uh, fencing is, is is described as as a you know mental chess so a lot of people like they might change their strategy in the middle of the because they're like oh man like he's hitting me with preparation or something so i'm going to change so then you have to recognize that oh man okay so this person's wised up i got to change as well um so i think that that is kind of why fencing is so challenging is, is because you know it is such a fast-paced um game yeah <laughs> yeah you touched on a lot of things that um that i think as well do, do you think that having been a med student studying chemistry and physiology has helped you understand like where like how you need how you need to condition how things work and um like strategy as well just i'm just curious about what your thoughts on these things are um well okay so i've always thought of myself as a pretty stupid fencer um i think i <laughs> I, I get by a lot. Okay, I'm not an idiot, but like I get by a lot on my physicality. Um, like I, I am like pretty like big and, and strong and, th- and fast and things like that. Um, and uh, but but I am kind of I, I get caught doing the same thing a lot. Um, and I, I lose a lot of points by just like not being able to change quickly enough. And so that's definitely something I, I know about myself. But I guess the other issue is is like when you're on the strip, you kind of like you enter a kind of a fight or flight mode and kind of panic mode where like, I'm not thinking as clearly as I usually am. Um, so then I'm just kind of reacting on instinct. Uh, so that's definitely something I've been working on. Um, and in terms of whether or not my background, um, yeah, I think I, I probably have a better understanding of like nutrition and um, kind of like how, how muscles work and things like that. Um, but also like, I do think that like knowing the theory is important, but also knowing that knowing your own body is also very important. Like everybody has a, a different body and things like that. So like knowing kind of what kind of fuel your body likes to have so that you can reach your optimal level of performance is really a kind of a, a journey for yourself to discover. Of course, like, like, I, I don't think if you, if you eat bacon and, and drink Coca-Cola, like, uh, uh, like every single day. And like, I don't think you're going to be at a peak athletic performance, but like, you know, if you kind of have the general principles, uh, then you can like, uh, choose different things to eat as well as like different, uh, like you know, amounts of time to sleep and things like that to kind of reach your optimal performance. But again, I think that's, you have to really like be, pay attention to your own body and your own mind. If you want to like maximize your performance as an athlete. Um, so uh, a lot of people get repetitive strain injury from fencing, right? Like uh, it could be like carpal tunnel or like, yeah. like I think a lot of people have knee problems, right? So yep. uh, have, have, you, have you been um, like thinking a lot about how to prevent these injuries for yourself when, when you fence like in before and after? Um, since you, you probably know much more about it than most people. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, it's not just for fencing any, for like a lot of, a lot of sports, there are multiple different injuries uh, you can sustain, especially from overuse. I think um, for me, especially because I'm, I'm older, 
than a lot of you guys. <laughs> um, like I'm 29 now. So actually like, um, which is still young, but my body isn't the same as when I was 19. So I think like one of the things that is really important is uh, warming up and warming down. Uh, so that like, I, I, like um, I have a very much longer warm up routine than most people at, at practice for us. So, um, and I think, um, I, I, I am, I am like very religious about my warmups. So that actually has helped me avoid a lot of serious injuries. Um, and also like, um, like proper rest as well. So if you, if you just push your body too far, then, um, like you just increase your risk of injury. So like rest is just as important as training. Um, so, and so kind of like these, these two kind of fundamental, approaches are important to make it so that you can stretch your body uh your body's um for as long as you can like uh, eventually like when you're like 80 years old you're not gonna be able to be able to do a lot you know when you get to that point but if you want to kind of have a longevity like you have to realize that life is a marathon and like just because you um you can do something when you're 19 doesn't mean you can do it when you're 29 or 39 or 49 um so uh, but if you want to kind of be able to stretch stretch it as long as you can having like um, a very disciplined approach to acti to physical activity is, is important. At least the good thing is that uh, you have a lot of people who are pretty old and can still fence, you know? So maybe you can switch to FA or something at that point. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, also, also though, if you, if, you, if you talk to them, the way that they fence is completely different from when they were younger because your body is just not as quick um, when you're older and like you, you, you can sustain a lot of injuries if you try to do something that you might've done you could have done when you were like 15 or, or something. So, so yeah, I think um, like just, just knowing your body is really important and your butt and also knowing that your body does change. Um, well, where do you get your like nutrition, nutrition advice? Cause you get a lot of really contradictory things online and when you talk to people, so like wading through all the like nonsense, right? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, yeah, nutrition science is just, it's, 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 re it's really like ruled by fads. Um, and like, also people just over interpreting results. Um, I think, like, try to think of specific principles, like, pr I think having principles, uh, but then being able had to really swim around within those principles. So kind of having wide borders. So my principles are generally like, um, you know, try to eat mostly vegetables if you can, not only for your own personal health, but also for uh, the environment. If you can go veg full vegetarian, good for you. I'm not necessarily advocating that, but uh, I do think having a little bit of meat is, is good because humans were adapted to be omnivores. But if you have a only meat diet, I also think that's bad um, for the environment and for yourself. I think mostly focusing on um, like uh, for your carbohydrates, uh, having kind of uh, complex carbohydrates rather than uh, you know, simple processed sugars. I think that's ge another general principle that a lot of the science does support. Um, and also trying to reduce uh, med bread meat consumption. And like, I don't think that actually necessarily affects your physical performance, which I think is more of just your long-term uh, cardiovascular health because definitely eating a lot of red meat does lead to higher rates of you know, high, having high cholesterol and having like, uh, you know, issues with your heart and things like that. Um, and uh, yeah. And then also reducing, um, like, I really do think reducing processed foods that you eat is really important. So trying to eat as much like whole foods as possible. So what, what, what is, what are whole foods? Like whole foods are basically everything you can buy produce section. That is a whole food. It is an actual, like 
grown from the earth food. Okay. And like trying to avoid things like, um, like, I don't know, like, uh, like the, like cookies and like all those things that are produced in the factories and things like that. Um, like, of course you can still eat them, but eat them sparingly. Um, and uh, mostly focus on cooking for yourself. I think that another thing that is really important is cooking for yourself. Cause if you just go to McDonald's or like all, uh, eat out all the time, that food is a lot more processed because, um, it just has to be in order to serve that many people so um that i think uh the kind of like these these concepts are are important i think uh for having a good healthy diet is mostly cooking for yourself using mostly real food um and it's also it, it helps like it helps you have better nutrition but also be a more disciplined person and it's also uh highly applicable because eventually if you have your own family it, it's probably better for your children if you can actually provide them with healthy foods versus uh feeding the mcdonald's and uh, Burger King and stuff like that. No, no, no slight against Burger King, McDonald's. Like, I think they're wonderful, wonderful enterprises. Not really, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I was gonna, I wanted to ask, um, well, what are the next steps for you then? Um, you're gonna finish here and then probably finish your MD as well. And is it two years? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I am moving back to America, America this summer to resume medical school at UC San Diego. It's two more years. So I will graduate with my medical, assuming I don't fail, I will graduate with my medical degree in 2024 summer. Um, and then after that, I will start hopefully, um, re, uh, so postgraduate medical training, which is called a residency training in America. So um, what that means, why is it called residency? It actually it used to be that like you would actually like live at the hospital. So you would be a resident of the hospital, like, uh, but they don't do that anymore. Like you get to have your own place now. Um, but basically um, like that's several years. I think I will probably choose to do a residency in internal medicine. So internal medicine is basically adult medicine. Uh, and uh, that is about two to three years of training. Um, and then it, you can then subspecialize within internal medicine. So you can do, for instance, oncology, which is cancer medicine. You can do, uh, you can do uh, cardio, card, cardiology, which is like study of the heart and the vascular system. You can also do infectious disease, which is what I'm planning to do. Um, you can do gastroenterology, which is the, the study of the, the digestive systems. Um, yeah, or and like stuff like that. So I, I am really interested in infectious disease and kind of vaccines against infectious disease. So I will probably um, specialize in infectious disease which uh, is a further probably three years of training. So basically I will be in my mid thirties by the time I finish my training oh. and 29 right now. <laughs> do, do you yeah. have like a, a dream lab that has everything you'd, you'd want in it and you'd love to work there? Um, well, I think the dream would be to start my own lab um, kind of like, so then I can like really decide my, my own research directions um, in terms of where I would like to have my lab. Um, like I grew up in California, so like maybe like starting a lab in California would be nice just cause you know, it's my home. Um, but, uh, also like I'm, I'm, I'm open to other, other places in the U S as well as places in the world. Uh, like, you know, I might come back to the, to the UK, you never know. Um, but I'll probably stay in the U S though, because, um, the United States, uh, residency training, it, it only certifies you to, uh, like do to take care of patients in. The USA, like I would have to get recertified if I moved to a different country, which wouldn't be that hard because the United States has like very rigorous medical training. So 
it's easy to get uh, recertified in other places, but it's just easier to stay in the US. So I, I imagine myself running a lab somewhere, maybe on the West Coast, um, and trying to develop vaccines against the next pandemic, basically. That's wonderful, Lawrence. Um, where, where can people find your work and possibly reach out to you? Uh, probably the best way is by email. So uh, yeah, um, you, they, they can just reach out to my personal email. Uh, it's Lawrence uh, T. Wang, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-T-W-A-N-G uh, at gmail.com. So um, my, my, uh, all my other university emails are going to get deactivated eventually. So, so yeah, I think my personal, unless, unless Google goes down and if Google goes down, then, then we'll have bigger problems, but, um, but yeah, so you can reach me, uh, at my Gmail. Uh, so yeah. And, uh, if anyone's listening, thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you so much. I guess, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for uh, yeah, taking the time to interview me. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much, Lawrence.